0: As we have read today already, Father, because the earth is Lord, is yours in the fullness thereof, and everyone who dwells therein, therefore you are worthy of the highest praise. As we have heard in your scriptures this day, because you founded this world upon the seas, established upon the rivers, it was spoken into existence by the word of your great power in the beginning, you are worthy of the highest praise. When we think of you, Lord, in your glory, in your fullness, in your majesty, in your power, in your authority, and raises this question. Those of us of unclean lips, those of us of unclean hands, all of us sinners, how are we to ascend the hill of the Lord? We have found the answer in your scriptures as well. When Jesus Christ is our Savior, when His blood washes away our sins, when our souls are hid in Him, His death is counted to our account. His righteousness becomes our own. Then and only then may we ascend the hill. We thank You for Christ and His enabling of this worship service today. You are worthy of the highest praise because You have cleansed our hands and heart through Him and His great gospel. Lord, You are worthy of the gates of our souls being lifted and the proclamation of truth and the application of Your scriptures. In the furtherance of the gospel through your people, you are worthy of great and perfect obedience. And we pray, therefore, that you would sanctify us, that you would cause us to be equipped through the proclamation of your word to more fully and faithfully represent you, even in this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. This morning, what a great opportunity. What a precious gift. What a glorious occasion to open the scriptures together and behold them and to seek to remind our souls of the glory of the Lord and to be changed into that same image. Would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 11 today, which will be our primary text, though we will touch on several. The title of this morning's message comes from another passage of scripture, Luke 17:32. That verse is simply this phrase, remember Lot's wife, that sentence, remember Lot's wife, is the title of this morning's message. The aim of this morning's sermon is to proclaim the message of Sodom and Gomorrah echoed through scripture. To proclaim the message of Sodom and Gomorrah echoed through scripture, remember Lot's wife. Now we have been in a series in Genesis in recent weeks, and this is attached, this message is attached to that series. What I have tried to do at the close of each chapter of Genesis, when a story or a narrative portion, like Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot and his uh, life, when that kind of closes in the Scripture, we've taken a sermon or two to see how the rest of the Bible applies, interprets, and proclaims the truth about Lot, Sodom, and Gomorrah. And so that is the basic structure of this morning's message. Looking to the rest of Scripture to help us understand the significance of Sodom and Gomorrah, what happened there, indeed Lot and his wife, his family, and so forth. Hence our title, Remember Lot's Wife, and the aim to proclaim the message of Sodom through, from the whole Bible. Now, that is a, we won't be able to accomplish that in one sermon, but hopefully today an overview will suffice to provide some basic categories, understanding, and headings for us to realize the importance of what is taught to us in this story. Would you stand with me as you're able, with your Bible open to uh, Matthew eleven twenty 20-24, and let us, out of reverence, listen to God's Scripture, and then we will continue. Matthew 11, verse 20. Then he, this is Jesus, began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Cheruzin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For the land of Sodom, than for you. Jesus goes on to say in one more verse, At this time he declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. This is the word of God. You may be seated. The judgment that is worthy of the blindness of the people not to repent Even though there is full evidence of God's glory, even Jesus Himself, the incarnate Messiah, performing miracles around them, among them, the judgment that is worthy on a people who see the works of God and do not repent is a judgment that was worthy of Sodom and worse. That is a message that Jesus brings us from the Scriptures. It's a sober warning indeed. If we turn back to Genesis 19, we can grasp in just three sentences the context from which Jesus borrows. His reference. In Genesis 19, just to bring to your attention, to remind you where Jesus is quoting from, the testimony that he alludes to, verses 24 and 25 say the following, Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. Notice verse 26, But Lot's wife, behind him, looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. The Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur from heaven, destroyed the cities and everything that grew on the ground. Lot's wife looked back, she became salt. You see, in 24 and 25, there's just three sentences that proclaim, that record the destructive judgments of God of Yahweh executed upon the wicked societies of Sodom and Gomorrah. Nevertheless, this moment is referenced time and time again throughout all Scripture as a forewarning. There's a purpose in God's activity in this time of Sodom and Gomorrah, not just to punish those people at that time, but also to serve as a warning for all who would follow. This is the judgment that is deserving of those who do not repent, even though they are without excuse, as Jesus said, the great works of God are evident to them, yet if they harden their heart, this is the judgment they can expect. Thus, Sodom presents a cautionary tale. Have you ever heard that phrase? It's an example of what not to do. Lessons learned the hard way, so hopefully you learn them the easy way. A cautionary tale. And this is a tale for all of history. The punishment that was deserving of Sodom and Gomorrah is compared to the judgment At the last day, and in fact, the judgment at the last day upon all the unrepentant wicked will exceed it by multiples, untold exponential multiples. One of its great contributions, that is to say, of this passage, is to set forth by significant historical event a dire warning to future generations and future civilizations. Sodom and Gomorrah serve as a dire warning. They serve as a red flag. They serve... As a beacon, a siren, an alarm, a warning sticker, if you will, think of these ways that we alert ourselves to the possibility of danger. Well, God has done this in this event in history. When you see the warning sticker in Genesis 19, and you see that flashing light, you see that siren, or you hear that siren, and you see that warning beacon, pay attention. Pay attention no matter what generation you're in, and no matter what civilization you're in, because this is a lesson for you. Jesus himself says as much on several occasions. We've read one of them already. Do we remember Lot's wife? Luke 17, 32 commands us to do so. When was the last time you thought about her? Perhaps you hadn't for a long time prior to this message series. But the scriptures tell us it is wise to keep in mind Lot's wife and the significance of that moment when she turned her eyes away from the word and command of God back to the city in which she longed to dwell and thus received the same judgment of the civilization where she used to reside. She was turned into salt in a moment. What does she, what does Lot's wife and her cursed city have to teach us? This raises a question, does it not? Jesus answers in part. There's more answers through Scripture. Genesis 19 serves to illustrate, by way of spectacular example, the consequences of sin. That should be evident first and foremost. But furthermore, in the story, we also can see illustrated the mercy of God. After all, He forcibly removed... Lot from that place that was soon to burn. Also, the power of redemption. We've studied this in recent weeks. God saved one from the lineage and legacy of the corrupt line of Lot, Ruth, a Moabite. And his redemption is seen in that she was included in the line of Christ, an unlikely uh, woman who the world would consider damaged goods. Nevertheless, God can save even out of Sodom. These are the lessons of this spectacular example in history. As we consider the context of various references to Sodom this morning throughout the Bible, we can better appreciate the power and intent of the Genesis 19 account. So today's sermon will be an attempt to summarize the message of Sodom by drawing insight from further references through Scripture. So let me give you a brief outline here. Heading at the top, the legacy of Sodom and Gomorrah serves to illustrate the following. So the legacy of Sodom serves to illustrate the following. What can we learn about it? Or by looking to this story. Number one, def- uh, divine, and it means from God, of course, and decisive judgment. So Sodom illustrates divine and decisive judgment. Number two, Sodom illustrates the values of the city of man. Where you could go further to say it's a cautionary tale of the city of man versus the city of God. Uh, Sodom illustrates that concept. And thirdly, Sodom illustrates the consequences of gospel hospitality. And what I mean by gospel hospitality is welcoming Jesus Christ. Welcoming the Messiah into your own heart has huge implications as to salvation and judgment. And welcoming Jesus Christ into your society has huge implications as to the judgment deserving of that place as well. Number one, the legacy of Sodom serves to illustrate divine and decisive judgment. Turn to Luke 17, if you would. There are several references to judgments that Jesus proclaims during His ministry. This is one of them. And again, He references Sodom in the context of His declaration of judgment against Israel, against Jerusalem in particular. In Luke 17, verses 29 through 33, we pick up on this oracle from our Lord. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, Fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Title of our message. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in the night there will be two Uh, In one bed, one will be taken, the other left. He goes on to use a few other analogies that uh, describes this imminence and this particularity of God's visitation in judgment. That is to say, he draws on the example of Sodom to proclaim divine and decisive judgment that is to be expected of the unbelieving generation that did not repent like uh, like those uh, Capernaum and uh, Cheruzin and Bethsaida, Those were cities that did not repent when Jesus was revealed. Jerusalem Jerusalem likewise. So now Sodom is a frame of reference to proclaim what the people are to expect because they have not opened the door of their hearts or their society to the Messiah. In this way, we see that the account in Genesis 19 is a frame of reference for the prophets through Scripture, Jesus chief among them. It's a very useful text to provide a perspective and sobriety to the culture of their day who had been lulled to sleep by their own sin. Do pastors preach from Sodom and Gomorrah texts today? Shame on any minister of the gospel who would avoid the utility, the power and perspective that can be drawn from the pages of the account of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now it's not a popular message, I will grant that. We live in a society that prefers a, God, prefers a God in their own image, a flexible God, a malleable God, a God that we can change or adapt or alter, a God that we can adjust slightly or modify to fit the values that we prefer. I like the idea of a loving God, but that judging God in uh, all those other stories, I don't really believe that really. You know, I'm thankful for Jesus who put that old judgment stuff aside and, and, and really gave us a message of peace and joy and love and like a hippie that appeared on the scene in the Incarnation. Not so. We've already read two passages where Jesus is bringing the fire of God's judgment by way of proclamation, and it came in history. Jesus is the God of the Old Testament revealed in flesh. This is Yahweh. This is the second person of the Trinity proclaiming to us that the account of Sodom and Gomorrah yet stands as a portent, as a sign, as a forewarning, yea, indeed, as a foretaste of hell, And therefore, you ought to look to that story and have a wake-up call. If you live in a society, in a country, in a nation, among a people whose values are more like Sodom than those of God's holy hill proclaimed in Psalm 24, be awakened, be alarmed, be on alert. I'm here to tell you that there's sufficient armaments to stand in such a day, but one of them is to have a sober view of the dangerous culture in which you live. And to realize that only in Christ and with his armor and on his rock and with his values can you stand in such a day. Look to Sodom and see the future of America if she doesn't repent. Look at Gomorrah and proclaim that there's danger on the horizon if we don't turn from our wicked ways. This is what Jesus did in his day. This is what we are called to do in ours. Look at Sodom and see how Lot just escaped by the skin of his teeth. And he lost his family in the process. And have some fear, man. Have some fear, fathers, that you would not allow your family to escape into the clutches of Sodom. After all, the wicked culture of America knocks on the door every which way, seeking to suck the life out of our children, our wives, and ourselves if we're not careful. Be vigilant according to the covenant. Be an Abraham who prays and intercedes for those who are lost and under the knife of God's guillotine destruction, ready to fall on a hair trigger the moment that he sends his day of reckoning upon us and realize. That there is sufficient ground on which to stand, but it's only one way. We go to the Scriptures, we take them seriously, we memorize them, we apply them, we read them, we seek to be accountable to them, to be changed into their image, to provide for us correction, direction, a standard, foundation, etc. This is what the prophets did all through Scripture. And if you need some references, you can grab a copy of the notes and you'll see a ton of them. Amos 4.11, Deuteronomy 29... What can national Israel expect if they fall away from the covenant? Deuteronomy 29 tells us they can expect the same thing that Sodom and Gomorrah endured. What about uh, the wrath that might be worthy of the nation later on? Isaiah chapter 1-3 chapter 3 proclaims Sodom and Gomorrah is a good example of what will happen if the people don't turn to the Lord. And sure enough, they were taken into exile because of their obstinance and hardness of heart. Jeremiah 23, 49, chapter 50. Another prophet is referring to Sodom and Gomorrah as a reference point for God's righteous wrath intervening if the people don't turn to Him. Again, he writes in Lamentations 4, 6, similar message. Ezekiel proclaims in chapter 16, Zephaniah chapter 2, 2 Peter in the New Testament, chapter 2 as well. All of these prophets and apostles, they, they took Sodom and Gomorrah as a frame of reference to proclaim Hope in Jesus Christ and fear if you, if you do not cling to him in their day and age. Those of old proclaimed him by the way of the expected Messiah, and those in the New Testament proclaimed him as the ascended Messiah. So keep this in mind. Divine and decisive judgment is the message of Sodom and Gomorrah. When we remember Lot's wife, we remember that she was divinely and decisively judged in a moment because her heart did not cling to the word of God but was drawn back to her wicked affections. She wanted to go back to the city where she found her, no doubt, hope and identity, security and assurance. But there's no hope, identity and security and assurance to be found in a wicked culture. No, come out. Well, that's a scary thought. All my friends are here. I'm used to the surroundings. It's all I've known. There's prosperous valley. Yes, but the Lord's word is sufficient to tell you the truth of what's going to happen. The whole place is going to be burned up. And the Lord's word is sufficient to give you tools to survive, even if you're called to be an exile, a wanderer. Uh, And so this is a testimony of those who obeyed God in spite of the creature comforts they were called to sacrifice. And if God's fire is going to visit a place, you better believe it's a mercy that he would rescue you before it came. This is an event oracle. This is a term that I tend to use where something happened in history, but it's God speaking and expectation of what's to come. Sodom and Gomorrah is like that. In Luke 17, that passage that we read, Jesus says he's coming again to judge, and you'll know how he's coming and what the, what, the pattern of what to expect by looking at the event, which is also an oracle, the event word of Sodom and Gomorrah. As we said, Jude chapter 9, verse 7, holds out Sodom and Gomorrah as a foretaste of hell. That is to say, there is a reckoning for those who don't place their faith in the Messiah. And ultimately, that reckon, reckoning is that the great And last judgment. And at that judgment it is the most fearful day in all of the of history, because there is at that point no chance to return. So the message by Jude is repent while there is time. In Jude chapter nine, verse seven, he says it in these terms. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment. Of eternal fire, yet in like manner, he goes on to say, these wicked people relying on their dreams, uh, defiling the flesh, rejecting authority, um, blaspheming the glorious ones, implied there is they can expect the same future. In other words, Sodom and Gomorrah, they hold out the promise that for those who do not repent, there is a day of reckoning coming. There is a perfect God who sees all, who has all power, and is perfectly holy. If they have not trusted in the one way that he made for their sins to be atoned for, then there is hell to pay. How do we know that hell is real? Well, you might find some preacher who will tell you that hell is just a metaphor. Hell is just a concept. Hell is just an abstraction. I'm here to tell you that hell is real. You know how I know? Because the Spirit-inspired authors of Scripture, they say that the future of those who do not repent will be the same as the history of those who didn't in Sodom and Gomorrah. Real fire fell out of heaven and burned that place. And even archaeology records they couldn't even plant anything there for 700 years. Do you need proof? I found a cool article. So I was looking, around, poking around online uh, last year for evidence in archaeology of Sodom and Gomorrah. And you'll never believe what I found. So this is on a website, I think it's called uh, F. Uh, let's it know, P-H-Y-S, short for physics.org. Articles by Evan Goh, I believe, and he is compiling from some studies of an archaeological uh, dig that took place around the area of Sodom and Gomorrah historically. The title of the article is This A Meteor May Have Exploded in the Air 3,700 Years Ago, Obliterating Communities Near the Dead Sea. A meteor may have exploded 3,700 years ago, obliterating communities near the Dead Sea. Here's a few. I I wish I could read this whole article, but I pulled a few quotes for you. All of it is just intense. Quote, a meteor that exploded in the air near the Dead Sea 3,700 years ago may have wiped out communities, killing tens of thousands of people, and provided, listen to this, the kernel of truth to an old Bible story. Can you tell this is not written by believers? you tell this is written by scientists almost in spite of themselves? Oh, a kernel of truth, huh? Keep your discerner on. Let's keep listening. The area is modern-day Jordan in a 25-kilometer-wide circular plain called Middle Gore. Quote, evidence gathered at the Tel Hamon site tells the story of the event. When the meteor air burst occurred, there was an intensely hot and powerful shockwave. The shock wave wiped out all settlements in the area and destroyed an area of 500 square kilometers. The area remained uninhabitable for a remarkable 700 years after the event. Several lines of evidence support the likelihood of this event. He cites a few. A pottery shard was found in the city. One side had melted to glass. The research team concluded that this shard was exposed to temperatures between 8,000 to 12,000 degrees Celsius for less than a few milliseconds. That certainly supports the idea of an airburst. The two scientists say that the massive shockwave and heatwave not only destroyed the settlements, but the shockwave, listen, deposited a layer of salts onto the topsoil, destroying it and making it unable to support agriculture for hundreds of years. It only takes a salt content of 12,800 ppm to prevent wheat from germinating, and 17.9 to prevent barley from growing those thresholds were easily exceeded. Researchers have have concluded that an airburst uh, with a yield equivalent to a 10 megaton nuclear warhead occurred one kilometer above northeast corner of the Dead Sea. They say this adequately explains all the evidence gathered gathered at Tal El-Hammam. You could have known that this happened long before they figured it out through science by reading God's holy word. I want to read you one more paragraph in this article. Keep your discerner on. The Bible is interesting from a historical perspective because it sometimes interweaves actual events from history with the Christian mythology. Oh, now that it seems reasonable that a meteor airburst did destroy the area that may have contained Sodom, we can lay to rest the idea that the Christian God sent down fireballs to punish homosexuality It looks like, once again, it was a perfectly natural event that led to an apocalyptic mythological story and that what the people once attributed to gods and goddesses is just nature. Oh, really? Is that the conclusion we ought to draw from archaeology testifying to a natural 10 megaton bomb exploding over the area that God had proclaimed prior to would be judged by fire from heaven if they did not repent? No, that is not the conclusion you should come to. You see... Right here, ironically, the people are faced with evidence in their own discipline that corroborates the scripture and yet they remain blind. What's the message for a scientist who would conclude such a thing? You have less reason. You have less excuse than most people to remain blind to the truth of God's word. If you look at an incredible event that's testified to in your discipline, corroborated in scripture and don't realize that God is the genius who has ordered all events in history and written them down for you to repent and believe... You will one day face the 10, 10, 10 megaton plus weight of his wrath if you do not repent. A godly scientist does, uh, pursues his discipline with humility. And if you were privileged to come up with this information, holy smokes, you better repent and turn from your sin and place your faith in the God of Scripture who predicted you would find what you found right there in Genesis 19. Genesis 19 And even the archaeological evidence holds out this message. The legacy of Sodom serves to illustrate divine and decisive judgment. So let us have the correct response to this revelation. Major point two the legacy of Sodom serves to illustrate the city of man versus the city of God. This is a concept that has been developing through Scripture thus far. There's individual elements of the city of man versus the city of God. In other words, where do we find security? Where do we find community? And where are our values drawn from? There's two possible sources in this construction. Excuse me. Security, community, and values can be drawn from the city of man in these terms, or they can be drawn from the city of God, as it were. It's the way the Bible speaks about two ways to organize your life and the lives of those around you. So which do you belong to, I ask? Do you belong to the city of man, Sodom, or do you belong to the city of God? that place that Abraham pursued in faith. Now, there are individual parallels to Lot's experience. There were times when Adam committed similar sins to Lot. Do you remember Lot? His uh, wife, or he's running out in front of his wife. You see in the context there. She becomes a pillar of salt, and, the implica- and his daughters, of course, commit this great immorality. He, does, he can't convince his son-in-law to leave the place. They think he's just joking. In spite of himself, he lingers. The angel has to pull him forcibly out of this situation. Why did all this take place? Well, Lot was committing something like the sin of Adam. He was betraying a tendency to embrace the values of the city of man. Adam, think of his testimony in the garden. He failed to secure the garden and his family from threats of the enemy, Satan. He failed to secure the garden and his family. uh, And uh, and in so doing, um, he, he became victim and his wife to the predations of the serpent. Adam was called to guard the sacred presence of the Lord, to be that priest king, to be that agent of God's dominion, to provide protection and to guard the heart of his wife, and to guard the perimeter of this dwelling place. And if there would be a satanic figure that would come, Satan himself disguised as a serpent, Adam was to do what the second Adam did, stomp on his head, remove him from the garden. Since Adam failed, uh, he and his family were plunged into sin. Similarly, since Lot failed in his duty to some degree to secure the perimeter of his heart and his family from the predations of Sodom, he ended up losing his wife, and losing his daughters, morally speaking, and his sons-in-laws, and so forth. So there is a parallel between the city of God and the values that have tempted others who went before him. Similarly, Noah. Noah, at the end of his story, we find him discredited and in shame. Drunkenness and uh, nakedness uh, punctuate the story as his chapter closes. And likewise, Lot, drunkenness and nakedness, he uh, he falls into as well. Abraham, he was seeking a secure future when he took for himself a second wife to raise up offspring. By his own power, according to the ingenuity of man, he took Hagar against the will of the Lord. And in a similar way, Lot's daughters got him drunk in order by incest to try to secure their lineage. You see, in the city of man versus the city of God, there are two sets of values that are illustrated there. And these can be, depending on the trial that we're in, a, te- a very tempting thing. When people seek to secure their future through worldly means, they can fall prey to the temptation of the values of the city of man. What are the values of the city of man? Why well, I submit to you, the city of man is organized around an institutionalized form of the very first lie that Satan told. You will be like God. The city of man believes that they can be like God. And when it's institutionalized, it manifests itself in the following forms. A perversion of covenant. Instead of following God's way of ordering our affairs, we seek for do it our own way, right? This happens throughout the Scripture. Covenant abdication. Not taking the responsibility God has given us, but deferring it to others. Or covenant perversion. Reconstructing the nature of our relationships in a way that we prefer. If you can be like God, well, I guess you have authority to do such a thing. So when you believe Satan's lie... The city of man proceeds accordingly. Humanism. Humans are the highest authority, the measure of all things, and what they can accomplish is really all that we can hope in. That's a value of the city of man. Imperial collectivism. Pooling your efforts together. Um, Again, at the Tower of Babel, we see a perfect example of this in Genesis chapter 11. Not uh, honoring God's law with respect to uh, jurisdictions, private property even, and who's in charge of what. But pulling together all your efforts in a sort of collective declaration of yourself as a God above Him. And nation states today are doing the same thing. Self-indulgence, shameless pride, authoritarian obstinance. People who proclaim in their self-made authority, they they don't have to listen to what God says. Self-glorifying ambition. We're going to build this tower to heaven. We don't care what God says. Materialism. The only hope that we really have is in this life. So we're going to do everything uh, breaking God's law just to try to secure our future, temporally speaking. So I apologize for the kind of long list there, but this is a good, I think, start or summary of the things that attend the city of man, how man organizes himself independent of God. And If you put all these together, what do you get? You get a beast. The nation in which you live is either a monster, a beast, or it is a nation that is submitted to the Lord. The scriptures say that blessed is a nation whose God is the Lord. Because they have, they have the opportunity to have peace because they all look to God to order their affairs. It's not that they don't have challenges, but they have a way to work them out. Our nation, in as much as it has become more and more akin to the city of man, has become a beast, as the scriptures say. It's a monster. And in Sodom and Gomorrah, it was a monstrous beast in which they lived. The people had abdicated their covenant responsibility. They had perverted the relationships. The whole social order had broken down until it got to the point where the two angels that were visiting Lot were threatened by a mob of homosexuals beating down the door to rape them if they could just break through. God preserved his uh, angels and Sodom and his family by striking them all blind, but that didn't stop their sinful attempts to try to get what they wanted. This kind of beastly, depraved, uh, acting out of the most base and gross intentions of their heart is an example that we learn from the legacy of Sodom. If sin is allowed to be unchecked, if we leave the framework that God has given us for us to return to him, follow his principles of order, be responsible according to his covenant, the sinfulness of our heart can uh, overrun a society and overrun our lives until it gets absolutely out of control and we live in a heart of a beast. And so it is, and so we see in the example of Sodom and Gomorrah that the city of man versus the city, versus the city of God is dramatically illustrated. Think of the legacy of Cain. Think of the legacy of Ham. Hey kids, a little pop quiz, a little trivia for you. Do you remember the legacy of Ham? It's Ham and the... That's right, Ham and the city builders. Ham was one of Noah's sons, and his legacy became known as those who would build cities. Not godly ones, mind you, but cities like Babel in Genesis 11, 1 through 8, and cities later pictured by Babylon. And then you go through the scriptures and you see kind of the ultimate picture by way of contrast between the city of God and the city of man in the book of Revelation. Revelation 18 lays out all of the values of the city of man, a city like Sodom. It's called Babylon. Pictured there in symbolic language, and then turn over a couple of chapters, and Revelation 21 tells you the values of the city of God: the new heavens and new Earth, indeed, the New Jerusalem. Turn with me to Hebrews 11. Now Lot was tempted to drift toward the city of man. He set up his tent on the outskirts of Sodom. He went a little closer still until he was within the gates of the city, and finally we find him at the gates themse- or at the gates themselves. When the angels come, he was drawn to the city of man. God rescued him mercifully. But on the other side, in contrast to this, the story that preceded him and the intercession that Abraham commenced with, we have this testimony. Hebrews 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when he obeyed, he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going, by faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. In this step of faith, Abraham willing to leave a city behind, to be a nomad, an outcast, a refugee, just passing through an exile, like we've learned from First Peter, Abraham, in taking that step, rejected the values and the promises of the city of man. And even though people no doubt made fun of him, he had less creature comforts. He never owned a permanent house after he took that step of faith. He dwelt in tents and so forth. Nevertheless, he did have a city home, but he pursued it in faith. He didn't sacrifice godliness, righteousness, and the hope and promise of Scripture for short-term gain. He didn't move to Sodom. Because the fields were really green over there and the city promised more security. He chose to be secure in the promises of God and set camp. Where Guys, where did he camp? Kids, where did uh, uh, Abraham dwell? Jordan. At- Jordan? At the oaks of? Oaks of Mamre. That's correct. The oaks of Mamre, he built an altar and he didn't move until the Lord told him to because he was organizing himself according to the city of God. City of Man versus City of God is illustrated in the legacy of Sodom. It brings up our final point this morning. The legacy of Sodom serves to illustrate the consequences of gospel hospitality. What do we mean by gospel hospitality? Well, recall in the story, um, the Lord and the two angels first appear to Abraham and he is at the door of his tent. And Abraham invites them in. And pretty soon, they're sharing a covenant meal. Lot, to his credit, does the same. The two angels move on from that place. They go and visit Lot. Lot immediately recognizes these men are of some importance. He throws open the door of his home, and he serves them as well. Where will you be when the man comes around? You guys remember that Johnny Cash song? Anybody a Johnny Cash fan? Um, when the man comes around. You know, that lilting voice of Johnny Cash and those kind of deep uh, baritone uh, vocals and something about the plotting temple of that song, and then the expressly biblical judgment language, it's pretty powerful. Hear the trumpets, hear the angels, a hundred million voices singing, multitudes are marching to that big kettle drum. You can hear it in the poetry, can't you? Some are born and some are dying. It's the Alpha and Omega's kingdom come. That song, in my estimation, has the ability to communicate something about the day of the Lord and his coming. Something like remembering Lot's wife. The multitudes are marching to the big kettle drum. There is a day of reckoning. There is an army who can't be defeated. There is a moment where the overwhelming presence of a holy God will ask, will require, demand, compel everyone to give an account for their sin. Where will you be when the man comes around? Now the Sodomites, the, Sodomites, the ones who live there, unrepentant in their sin, were blind to these men. They saw them as people they could exploit for their sexual desires. Lot saw them as important men he better listen to. The Word of God we covered last week comes to a culture in need of judgment as the roar of a mighty lion. Will you listen? Or will you shove the fingers of sin in your ears and scream out like a toddler, I want to do whatever I want? What is our culture saying? There is a message, a roar from Scripture that comes forth from the pages of Scripture and delivers a guilty edict to a nation that begins like ours or continues like ours to organize themselves around principles of perversion, those uh, values of the city of man that we talked about before. Do you remember some of them? Covenantal abdication, perversion, humanism, collectivism, self-indulgence, shameless pride, Authoritative or authoritarian obstinance, self glorification, uh, self glorifying ambition, materialism. The roar of God's word comes forth through a culture like that and commands them to repent or else. Oh, what proof do you have? They might cry as you're bringing this message to their ears. You look no further than Sodom and Gomorrah and realize that God can explode a 10 megaton bomb of an asteroid over your head and turn you into dust in a moment and render your fields infertile and destroy your economy for 700 years if you don't turn from your sin. God has had mercy and favor in his long-suffering on our land up to this point, brothers and sisters, but do we deserve it? Or do we treat lightly and presumptuously the patience and kindness of our God? The scriptures say that the kindness of our God is not meant to be exploited, is not meant to give us more time to do whatever we feel, but it's to lead us to repentance. Pray, advocate, plead with the Lord like Abraham did for those who are in the city, that God would spare it for the sake of the righteous. And if there are no righteous there, that the people would become so by repenting of their sin and placing their faith in Jesus Christ. This is the roar of the lion, and I find it uh, symbolically heinous that right now the culture wants to muffle the roar of the lion by putting a mask on our face and telling us to social distance and frowning on the gathering of the assembly of the a church of Jesus Christ. Now more than ever, we need the roar of the body of Christ to be heard by those who are in Sodom-like rebellion against a holy God. Where will you be when the man comes around? That's a good question for our culture. Will you recognize the word of God and let in our Lord Jesus Christ and commune with him? Uh, Kids, I have another question for you. So Abraham enjoyed a meal with God, um, Lot enjoyed a meal with his angels. Do we ever have a meal with God? No. No. Yeah. Yes, yes. What is it, guys? What is it? Communion. Communion. That's correct. At the Lord's table, in two weeks, in two Sundays, there will be a table spread before you right here, kids. Remind us what the bread represents. The body. Body of who? Jesus. That's correct. And, bread, uh, and kids, what does the cup remind us of? Jesus' blood. Jesus' body and Jesus' blood, at the communion table is a covenant feast. It's a meaningful participation in the very thing that will save us. You see, when Lot declared that he was friends with the angels, he had hope of deliverance from the doomed city, from the hell-bent city. When Abraham said, I am friends with Yahweh and his ambassadors, he was bound in covenant and he was following them and they were leading him through from the city of man to the city whose designer and builder is God. The only way to escape judgment is to be friends with God. And the only way to be friends with God is to come to Him on His terms according to His covenant. And we know what that is if you know the gospel. Your sins must be atoned for by Jesus Christ's own blood. You must confess them, turn, and place your whole hope and confidence in Him. And then enjoy that sweet fellowship. And this is why we say each communion Sunday that if you trust and believe Jesus is your Messiah, the table is open to you. You are friends with God. You're enjoying a covenant meal with him. I hope that's where you are when the man comes around. Because if you're out carousing with the world, making friends with the values of the city of man, if you're out uh, finding uh, fun things to do, and a world gone to seed and worthy of hellfire, that is a scary place to be. And you must turn and you must accept the Lord Jesus as your Savior if there is any hope to escape that coming day. These are the consequences of gospel hospitality. Now, in Hebrews 13 2, the author says that there were those who entertained angels unawares. In other words, they opened up their home to uh, the individual to have fellowship with. And in, and, and in due course realized that it was God himself. So this pertains to Abraham and to Lot. Lot and Abraham were examples of gospel hospitality. Though Lot had to be yanked away from the city, nevertheless he opened his home to the Lord and his messengers. While Abraham was interceding for the city, he had received the message from the Lord himself of what was to come. So let us be individuals who intercede for the city, who open up our hearts and homes to the Lord, who have a covenant with Him, who consider the Lord our best friend, who could care less about the aspersions and the judgments and the persecution and the marginalization and the accusation of bigot, racist, homophobe, hate speech that you are going to hear from the world if you take a stand in the values of the city of God and reject the ideals of Sodom, you will hear that. Nevertheless, You can hear in the other ear the truth. You are my blood-bought son or daughter. Stand with me and join me in this covenant of absolute assurance and when Sodom burns, you will escape. These are the two options that we have as history moves forward towards God's ultimate end. And however it shakes out in our lifetime, the principle is always the same. Individuals are saved when they open their hearts in gospel hospitality to communion that the Lord provides through His body and blood, ransoming them from their sin and rendering them His children, His friends. A society needs this as well. The consequences of gospel hospitality pertain to society as well, the collective, if you will. Think of the difference between Sodom and Nineveh. Were they both worthy of the same judgment? Absolutely. Nineveh was wicked Uh, Dave recently preached on the crimes and the sins of Assyria. And they're so horrific, sometimes it's hard to even imagine how crazy, cruel, and perverse this society was. And Nineveh was their capital. But what happened? God sent a reluctant prophet, Jonah, and a revival broke out. And Jonah said, hey, you know, this place is going to be destroyed. And that's what he wanted. But in spite of his preferences, God had other plans for that city. And they turned away from the city of man And they turned to the values of the city of God, and they cried out in humility. Do you guys remember my message along the lines when COVID was first striking and the pandemic fear was hitting? The message was simply this, sackcloth or slavery. Those are your options. Sackcloth represents humility. It's that humble clothing that even the king put on. Fasting, denying himself uh, self-gratification for the purpose of focusing his attention on the Lord and recognizing in that position that he is humble and he is submissive to the one who is in authority over him, sets aside his kingly robes, takes on the sackcloth of repentance, and God has mercy and heals the land. Praise the Lord. You see, the message of gospel hospitality can save a nation. Nineveh threw its doors open wide to the word of God through the prophet Jonah, even though he was reluctant. God was not reluctant to save them. And when they threw open their hearts to the message of truth, and they did so by repenting, God spared them of the judgment, and there was a a wide-scale social change. There was a wide-scale revival that broke out. Lord, let it be. But if you do not repent, if you do not take on the sackcloth, as it were, if you do not assume this posture of humility, and you're a society who has embraced the values of Sodom, the only thing you have to look forward to is slavery. Slavery to your sins, slavery to the devil, hell itself, and in the meantime, a whole lot of oppression so long as you're alive. And this takes its manifest form in all kinds of different ways. You know, in the Old Testament, it was the exile and being overridden and your rights taken away and stolen and less access to private property and more restrictions, and today they're canceling you online, so on and so forth. That's the mark of a society in judgment because there's restrictions increasing and slavery increasing. Why? Well, if you want to look at the root cause, it's because our nation, America, is not hospitable to the gospel. America needs to repent, to take on the sackcloth of humility and cry out in anguish for her sins and ask God to save her. And then stop idolizing all this perversion from the places of power to the hearts of the individual. Now, in closing, we have an incredible example of this in the case of Jerusalem. I bring this up because we touched upon the triumphal entry last week. So there are two types of people that greeted Jesus in Jerusalem. There was one crowd in Revel in Matthew 21. And what did they do? Kids remind us. So Jesus is coming into Jerusalem on a donkey, and the people did something. you remember what they did? They laid down their and laid down branches. Very good. Ren, were you going to say that as well? What did the people do when Jesus entered into Jerusalem on that donkey? Cut off branches. Cut off branches from the palm trees, laid them down, and then cut, cut off took off their cloaks, yes, and laid them down as well. So, yesterday or uh, last week, we were exploring the significance of this. That cloak was the most precious item to the poor classes. It represented something very expensive, and in that cloak was invested the sum and security of their fortunes. So, when they Uh, set that cloak on the donkey of Jesus when they laid it in front of him, it was quite symbolically saying, it was a tangible way of saying, I pledge my life, my fortune, my sacred honor to the only king worthy of my worship. And Jesus is exalted upon the garments, the sum and security of the livelihood of these individuals as he enters on this lowly foal. How come they could recognize him and throw open their hearts and their fortunes to this great king? The Lord had opened their eyes. I pray the Lord opens our eyes as well. We might be expecting a different kind of Savior. Most of the people were at that time. But our Savior is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And He comes in a way that, in His way, in His time, on His terms. And if you have any other idea of Savior, repent, confess it, set it aside, and lay down your fortunes in sacred honor, as it were. Pledge the sum and security of your future in Jesus Christ alone. Worship Him. That's the call. But for others, they remained obstinate. And as the chapters unfold, we go from Matthew 21 to Matthew 23. And in Matthew 23, Jesus proclaims seven woes. He's calling down circumstances and judgment just like Sodom and Gomorrah on the scribes and Pharisees and all who would agree with them for things like this. Verse 29, Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would have not taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves. You are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? You see, these people, what were they doing? They were plotting to kill Jesus. And those who recognized who he was knew that they should lay down their fortunes and the sum of their security and all their worldly goods before him as an offering because he is just that worthy. The Savior, the true Messiah, has a real sorting effect when he comes. He has a real sorting effect at the end of history, too. There's only two camps, the sheep and the goats. The goats are thrown into everlasting fire, that which was prefigured, right? The foretaste of hell and Sodom and Gomorrah. That's where the goats go. But the sheep, the ones who follow him, hear his voice, love him, trust him, and recognize that he was crucified for them and place their hope in his promises, they will enter into glory eternal. Jesus laments this situation. He weeps and cries, as it were, over Jerusalem. In verse 37, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not see your house as left to you desolate. Jesus, in mercifully proclaiming his message of hope in the gospel of the kingdom, proclaimed to Jerusalem the surrounding areas, Find refuge, comfort in me. They would not listen. They stopped their ears. They plotted to kill him. They put him on the cross. And yet the gospel went forward still. And there were those who would repent of even that great sin. But when they did so, they renounced the city of man. They renounced the sins of the scribes and the Pharisees. They renounced affiliation with Sodom and Gomorrah and all those worldly and heinous values. And they embraced Jesus Christ that humble Savior who is now ascended at the right hand of the majesty on high, ruling and reigning until he puts all enemies under his feet, they embraced that Savior, they repented, and they believed. Where will you be when the man comes around? Will you be laying down your cloaks of, trium- of, of, of worship to the Lord, recognizing that he alone uh, is your hope and your stay? Or will you be rallying with what most people often do in these times, with the popular opinion and say, away with this man. He threatens our comfort. He threatens our identity. He threatens our future, and so on and so forth. So in this instance, or in these examples, we see how the reckoning of Sodom has an effect to bring to attention and accountability a people who are lost and deserving of judgment. The legacy of Sodom illustrates that decisive judgment will come And it draws a distinction between the values of the city of man and the values of the city of God. And it also proclaims the consequences of gospel hospitality. And as the Lord brings forth His word in times like these, we have the opportunity to repent and to turn to Him, even giving Him our cloaks, so to speak, in worship. And if we do so, we will not suffer. uh, When the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah comes, And we must remember in times like these that he will not suffer Sodom and Gomorrah forever. Do you understand that there is judgment hanging over our heads in this land if we don't repent? So two things by way of application and just to summarize. Make sure that all of the investment of your hope is in Jesus Christ to save you in times like these. And also make sure that you proclaim this to others. Because if you have any compassion on your neighbors, this is a message that they need to hear. We must turn from our sins, turn to Jesus Christ, and only then might he heal our land and save us from the wrath that we certainly deserve. This is true for the individual. It's true for our society. Lot and his wife, or Lot's wife, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, have taught us as much. Let us close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the message of your scriptures which rings true even in times of confusion such as the era in which we live. Lord, there are many um, people running around seeking to patch together hope for the future in a world that's deserving of judgment. But we stand with you and we uh, we hold ourselves accountable to the corrective lens of Scripture and that which is foundational to our faith. We pray that you would use the message of Sodom and Gomorrah, that you would use the message of the gospel, to establish us firmly so that we are unshaken in times of uncertainty and unrest. In all of this, Lord, we do pray for our land, that you would bring a revival, that the sackcloth, so to speak, of repentance would become the most popular article of clothing, as it were, that people would turn from their rebellion, their covenant obstinance, their rejection of you, their idolatry, to worship and serve the one true God. In the meantime, Lord, would you raise up the roar of your church calling for repentance? Would you equip your gospel ministers to be all the more bold and loud, even in a culture that seeks to suppress the truth? Lord, in order that more might be saved, we pray, Lord, that you would do so. We thank you for the opportunity of shining for you in spite of the conditions in which we live. Give us grace to do so, not for our sake ultimately, but for yours. We glorify you and praise you as our Savior and King, Jesus Christ. Amen.